All right, if you want to open up to Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23, I am a pastor's kid. Not only am I a pastor, I'm a PK. Grew up in a Christian home, and in that home, there were certain prayers that we would pray. Um, and, and these prayers are probably familiar to a lot of you. They had a certain cadence to them. Uh, before we would pray for a meal, like we would sing, or we would pray, um, you know, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for this food, which doesn't really rhyme, but when you're eight, that's how you think. And then sometimes we would, like, forget to pray, and we'd eat, and then we'd be like, Mom and Dad, we forgot to say thanks. And so then we'd say, God is good, God is great, thank you for this food we ate, you know. Um, but I remember specifically before bedtime, there was this cadence to the prayer that I would pray, and I would just recite it, and it kind of was like meaningless, but I couldn't go to bed until I prayed it. And it, I still remember the words when I would say, um, you know, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for all your love and blessings. Help me have a good night's sleep, no bad dreams. Amen. Like that was my prayer. And every night I would just, good night's sleep, no bad dreams. I would always pray for that. And, and I remember that, that cadence to this day, how I would recite that in my head or speak it out loud when praying before bed. Uh, the church has had prayers that we find throughout scripture. Um, there, there's, there's prayer, and then there's these almost like liturgies that help us pray. Like, we read the Lord's Prayer today. Like, we, to, to, Jesus teaches us how to pray, and when you hear those words, it, it, there's something grounding about that. It reminds us of, of what Jesus calls us to do. It, it's nostalgic for us. There's something powerful about the Lord's Prayer. Um, the Old Testament, you have things like the Prayer of Jabez, which a whole book was written about the Prayer of Jabez, like, back 20 years ago. You have Paul's prayer to the Philippians. Um, that, that's, a, that's not just a, him praying for them, but was probably a prayer that was shared. Um, the passage we're looking at today is a prayer of the early church. And this prayer comes out of a story that we've been tracking with the last month or so. We're in the book of Acts. It's a 30-week series. It's a long series, but we're kind of ending like a mini-series for the month of June that was about the story of Peter healing a man who had been crippled since birth at the temple gates, this gate called Beautiful. And we've been looking at that the last three weeks or so, this miraculous healing from Peter, and then what happens after that. Because after this man rises up and walks, this huge crowd comes together to see what happened, and Peter takes that moment to bring glory to God. And we talked about the humility of Peter to say, God did this, where if it was me, I would be like, get me the book deal, you know, look how, how God used me, you know, put me on Oprah. Like, that, those are the things that I would do. But for Peter, he says, this is what God has done. And then it gets so much attention that the Sadducees come. And they arrest Peter, and they put him before the Sanhedrin, and they find out that he's doing this in the name of Jesus. The same group of people that murdered Jesus on the cross comes after Peter. And there's this court case between Peter and the Sanhedrin, and we, we talked about that last couple of weeks. And, and then what happens is they let Peter go. They make threats to him. They tell him to stop you know, preaching the name of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and they let him go. And as those disciples, that early church, receive Peter and John back to them, this is the prayer that comes from it. So let's turn, Acts chapter 4, verse 23, it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. 
Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy one, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided before should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all and worked with, with them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles also called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And this is how this story kind of comes to an end here in Acts chapter 4. And if you look at just the passage we read, you've got this outline of like there was the prayer of the early church when they receive Peter and John back. And then there's this change in the tone, and it talks about the generosity of the early church, um, this response to like what God has done. There's this generosity. And then there's um, an introduction to an important leader in the early church. His name is Barnabas. We won't get to Barnabas much today, um, but this is a man named Joseph from Cyprus. They call him Barnabas, and it means sons of encouragement. And we'll find in the book of Acts, his story um, is important. He, he appears like five to seven times or something like that. And, uh, and really, like what, what they're, they're bringing up this detail, um, for next week's sermon, we'll, we'll hear kind of this is like foreshadowing of what happens next week. So if you read ahead, you're going to hear the story, and you'll be like, oh, what in the world? So that's next week. But um, the prayer of the early church, the generosity of the early church, and this important leader of the early church. So Peter has been set free, goes back to the disciples, and they have this prayer, praising God for letting Peter go. And I would say that this prayer, if this was a prayer of the early church, I think Luke puts it in this, uh, in this story I mean, Luke only has so much space to tell the story of the early church. Something was important enough about this prayer that he says, we need this. And obviously, like, Scripture is divinely inspired. Like, like the Holy Spirit is at work in writing this. But there's a reason why this prayer is here. This is this prayer of the early church. And as you hear the tone, two things come out. This prayer is full of conviction and strength. There's conviction in this prayer from this early church, and there's strength in this prayer. And the conviction comes, it, it, there's this conviction that in the power of God as they start this prayer. Like they, they have this phrase, sovereign Lord, the sovereignty of God. 
And, and what happens is they quote the Old Testament. They quote these liturgies from the Old Testament that were part of like the worship of God's people. As they, they talk about how God is um, the creator of the heavens and the universe. Like God is sovereign and there is, there's a power to that and they're grounded in it. There, it it's, there, worship reminds us of God's sovereignty. It helps refocus our eyes from the craziness of this world into the sovereignty of God. And in there, there, there's this place of peace that God is, sees all. God is in control. Like we, that's what we sing about as we, we just sing these songs. We come to worship because it, it, it's this time that's formational for us that feels different than everything else that we do when we gather for corporate worship with this liturgy that reminds us of the sovereignty of God. And there's convictions here that they're, they're like, with everything that's happening, with the story with Peter and John, with the story of what they did to Jesus and how that actually was a part of God's plan from the beginning, there's this reminder of the sovereignty of God, and there, there's this conviction to that. Then also, there's this conviction of the futility of man that's here. The futility of man. I mean, they're, they're quoting Psalm chapter 2 in this prayer. In that Psalm chapter 2 talks about why do nations rage and people plot in vain. It talks about like the plans of the systems of this world that always fail and always exhaust and all of the things that the powers of the world try to do. It's all futile. There's this reminder for, for them, even as they, they deal with the Sadducees here and they're like, the Sadducees, they, they killed Jesus but that was actually according to God's plan because Jesus went to death, gave his life, dies on the cross, conquers death, rises from the dead. No matter what, those, those plans can't stop what God is up to in this, this work of him restoring and saving humanity. The plans of man are just futile. And, and the, it's interesting the language they use because they draw from Psalms where they talk about nations and people and then kings and rulers and then they flip it to like their present day moment where you have Herod and Pontius Pilate. So you have the king and you have a ruler. And then you have the Gentiles and the people of Israel, which are the nations and the people. And they're like, what we have seen in the Old Testament has come out in play in our, in our, in our world. That, that God is at work here and the plans of man are futile opposed to God's plan. And there was this conviction that shaped how they lived because of that. And then there was the strength of this prayer. And the strength comes from that story of Jesus. See, Jesus suffers, and he's put to death by those powers. But then he triumphs over death. There's this reminder of the story of who Jesus is, that, that there's resurrection, there's new life, there's new creation. It changes who Peter is. It changes how Peter acts. And there's strength that comes from that. We are people of the resurrection. The resurrection was their central message. And then there's the strength that comes because they just simply pray for it. And I find that fascinating. They say, Lord, enable us to preach the word boldly. The strength comes because they ask that God would just fill them with courage. And it's interesting with all of those events that are happening, and this is the first time the church has like really run into resistance and persecution with the Sadducees. What they're praying in this moment, they don't pray for relief from the oppression. And they don't pray for judgment from these people that are oppressing them. What their prayer is, is that, the, that God's word would be boldly communicated. 
and that God would be glorified in the midst of their circumstance. And this, this is an incredible, like, you see this in the character of the early church all throughout Acts when they face persecution and they face resistance. For them, they give their lives to this thing. They, they stop looking around saying, you know, what is it, my own self-preservation, my own agenda, this old thing that I'm, I'm trying to build for myself? And they say, no, we want to glorify God with our lives. We want God's message of salvation to be lifted high with our lives. And if we suffer for that, if we sacrifice for that, this is a story that we're a part of. The sovereignty of God, the futility of man. And then the result of this is this gift of the Holy Spirit. God's presence is with them. And they're filled with awe and wonder. They're seeing these miraculous signs. The fruit of the Spirit says the place shakes. We've seen that a couple of times now in the book of Acts. There's this prayer of the early church. Something powerful happens here, and it reminds them the story that they're a part of. No matter what situation they're in, God is in control, and this is heading somewhere. Then the tone of the passage changes, and it starts to talk about the generosity of the early church. So you have this conviction and strength, this this courage that's contagious. And you see the fruit of that in the generosity of the church. Like, it, it uses language where it says they, they're, giving, they're giving their own private possessions away to meet needs in their community. And I think what Luke is doing here, he's drawing from glimpses in the Old Testament, like in Deuteronomy 15, where it talks about when the Savior would come and the new people of God would gather, here's what it would look like. And, and Luke is drawing some parallels to those passages saying this is how, how that is manifested with this church. There's a sense of responsibility to each other. And there's this desire to share because they realize their lives are temporary. They're giving, they're a part of the story that is eternal where they're bringing glory to God with how they live and how they sacrifice to meet the needs in the community. And then it tells us with great power the apostles continued to testify the resurrection and God's grace was so powerfully at work that there were no needy persons among them. In our men's group on Tuesday in a Bible study, Bob Riddle points this out, this power and grace side by side in this story. Not power without grace, not grace without, power and grace together lived out in the context of this community. And there's no needy persons among them. Glimpse of the church that is activated, that is firing on all cylinders, that is healthy, that is working in a community. Generosity is this response to this invitation of God. It was also this expectation of the people of God to meet needs in the community. And I would say that what made the church so compelling wasn't just their theological beliefs, but it was their radical generosity that spilled out of them into the community, meeting all the needs. The body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus at work. I think this passage is helpful, especially for our, our cultural moment. I don't know if anyone read the news this week. There's a really big news came out. And even as I bring that up, I realize how awkward and comfortable I make everybody. I'm awkward and uncomfortable all the time, so welcome. <laughs> um, so this week, the, the news of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade 
Um, and what that means is that what, what this decision means is there's, there's no right to an abortion under the Constitution, but it doesn't make abortion illegal. It just it moves it um, to allow the states to decide in the state's jurisdiction. Um, and when we, we think about that, I receive, you know, like I, I feel the, the weight of this moment, and, and we have people um, that we're connected to and that are part of our community that are on all sorts of different um, opinions on this. Um, and like, what is the church's response? This decision has been made. What now does the church do? And what I would like to suggest is that um, the more serious an issue is in our culture, the more we need to slow down and be face-to-face with people when we talk about it. And the tendency is, especially as, as this thing seems to like spiral, uh, the, the heat in our culture is that we, we can't slow down and have face-to-face conversations. Like, it, it just becomes something that we... We, we spit out sound bites or throw memes at each other. Um, and, and this is something that must be handled um, with, with civility as we talk through it because there's a lot that's going on here. There's a, this is a complex issue. And I was reminded, even as a pastor, one of the pastors I follow, that when we talk about an issue like abortion, the different layers that are at work here, um, here, here's just six of them that I've, I've experienced, and John, John Tyson's this pastor that I follow that reminded me of this. There's, this. there's this public layer of the cultural implications of this decision. And if you've been anywhere near media or internet, like you have experienced the cultural implications of what this does to communities, what this does to families, to, to hear something like this. And then there's like the policy, which is like the legal implications of, of what's going on here. That's another layer uh, to this conversation. And then you have like the, the principle behind it, which like having this biblical framework of, of what's going on in this conversation um, from, from an ethical standpoint. And then you have this pastoral layer, which I have as a pastor, of loving my congregation, loving and caring for others, um, understanding stories in our congregation, um, hearing um, all sorts of emotions that come out of that this week. Then there's this personal layer of, of my own processing, and then there's this prophetic layer of, of God's word, speaking truth to power. Like you have, and there's all of these layers that, like for an issue like this. And the way that this plays out, just to think of like the, the public or the, the, the um, you know, cultural implication of it. So if you're around... Uh, anything media this week, what you'll find is a lot of celebrating and a lot of anger. Um, and, and so what happens is everyone um, starts, you know, voicing opinions about, like, what's going on. Um, and, I, and I'm on social media, and, and, I, and I see that, and there's just great anxiety, like, with everyone around this issue. Um, and one person I was following, um, Jackie Hill Perry, this author, wrote this about this, the cultural moment, the cultural implications of this decision. And it reminded me that, the, it, she says this, the amount of social pressure to add commentary to every current event is interesting. It's as if we believe that a post is the primary proof of one's theological and sociopolitical position. To me, sometimes it seems that certain hot takes are less about the event itself and more about how one re- one's responses to the said 
event categorizes them. So social media becomes this tribal marker. And it becomes this anthem for which side you represent. Meanwhile, we're just talking and doing nothing. But what if the first place we went to with our celebration and with our outrage was to an embodied community made up of flesh and blood? People we know who we can touch, hug, pray, or protest with. What if our words stay home at first, a place where nuance and thoughtfulness and wisdom can shape them? None of this is to say we shouldn't speak, but we should be slow in doing so. If and when silence seems the wiser option, may it because your words found the refuge away from the applause performance. And I think there's something to that. Just from a, the cultural moment that we find ourselves in where there's so much heat around this, um, like hot takes don't heal communities. And hot takes don't build bridges with people. And they don't relieve tension of this fallen world that we live in. And the tendency, and what I've seen, and the pressure, I think, is like to, to get something out because it feels like we're doing something about it. And oftentimes, that doesn't mean that we don't have a voice and we don't speak prophetically, but I think a lot of it, what it is, is it feels like therapy. Like social media feels like therapy. It's a place where we can lament. It's a place where we can um, feel like we're being heard and like we feel like we're doing something about it. And then what happens is like we read everyone else's therapeutic responses and it becomes our anxiety. And I just don't know how helpful those kind of things happen with an issue that's so serious. But to be a part of a community of faith that embodies this, to sit down with people, to listen, to talk through it, just from a cultural standpoint, it's exhausting. And the church has the ability to say, we can gather people together and have conversations about all of the layers of this. The second thing that, that with this is the political side of it that is is so exhausting to me, and, and, um, and part of that is, you know, like my, probably my own cynicism towards politics. I tend to be a weak, centralized government guy and, and make jokes that, you know, like, well, politics is Hollywood for ugly people, and it's all show, and like, you, you know, like it's, but the politics of it can be exhausting. And, and even as we, we think about the politics of it, the reason, um, it, for me, they don't resolve, and here's why. And you have probably felt this. If you're against abortion, one side's going to come after you and say, well, you're against women's rights and equality. And you get attacked. And if you are for women's rights on this issue, people are going to say, you don't care about babies. And so you get, you get stuck on these extremes, yanking you back and forth, and you're getting hammered by people that you love, you're getting hammered by family, by friends, by neighbors. Because what politics does and the ideologies that are behind them in our culture and often in, in many cultures is they create these false dichotomies that we're forced to live into. Like, you, if you're one, then you're completely against the other. And for me, for me like that, that's exhausting. And what I have found is that with an issue like this, as a follower of Jesus, what our narrative is, is that humanity created in the image of God means something. All humans created in the image of God means that God loved them so much that Jesus came into the world and died for them, gave his life so he could have 
relationship with him. But all humanity is created in the image of God. And it's from the womb to the tomb. The way that we see people in this world and that as a church, we give life both here and now and eternally. We're a part of an eternal story. And Jesus is the author of life. And that means Imago Dei from the womb. It also means for vulnerable women, the, the decision to have this abortion. So much goes into that, whether it's the economic reasons, whether it's the circumstantial, the situational ethics, the morality of it. The church has to move into those stories with people who are vulnerable to these types of things and walk alongside with them. We care from the womb all the way to the tomb. We're pro Imago Dei. And what happens is, we see this with Jesus, they try to get him to set up on, on different sides and say, you have to be this or that. And Jesus offers us a brand new way to live life. It's called the kingdom of God. And the nations rage and people plot in vain. But what the church does is it gives a new story for people to walk into and to live into. From the womb, creating the All right, maybe we just all needed a breath. <laughs> I did. Um, okay, so, so for, for us, the, this being pro-Mago Dei, image of God from the womb to the tomb, um, we see that compelling life that the church lives out in Acts chapter 4, where they're, they're in the midst of people who have great needs and vulnerability. Part of their message is so compelling because of their radical generosity to walk with people in those stories. Um, and so then from, let me gather my thoughts. Where was I? <laughs> uh, just a personal thing. Like th th this thing has so many layers to it. Um, so even, even for, for us, we have four children. Um, we've, been, we've been blessed by that. Um, we've also gone through miscarriages and because of science and knowledge, we've always had operations that have allowed us to have more children. Um, we're, we're in a place where we have been able to experience like benefits because of our, our position, um, our social, social status in the community, um, our provision and all of that. Um, we've, we've, we've had the benefits of that. Um, there, there's so many different layers to, uh, to this issue. Um, but he, here's how I think the church res should respond. And this decision's been made. How do we move forward in this community? Um, a couple things. One, we're still called to love our neighbors. No matter what happens uh, with the powers that be, no matter what happens with 
our politicians and, and the rules that we are in. The early church um, is living under Caesar and they're living under Herod. And that doesn't stop their message. We're still called to love our neighbors. And, and with that calling means we have to like know our neighbors and we have to walk alongside our neighbors, people that we, we disagree with, people that we uh, don't like. Um, the church is called to love our neighbors. And the second thing is we're called to be compassionate towards people. Compassion is this characteristics that we see with Jesus as he's living his life on this earth. He'll see brokenness, he'll see pain, and something inside of him aches. And then he responds out of that ache. And he takes that energy from that pain and brings about something good, brings about life. And the third thing is that we're called to bring life as a church. If, if our God is the author of life and he wants us to live life to the full, we bring life to a community. And that's where I think that what that looks like from the womb to the tomb is that the hands and feet of Jesus are activated in a community to bring life. That plays out in all sorts of different ways. We're called to love our neighbors, we're called to be compassionate, and we're called to bring life. And what you find about this compelling message in the early church is it's not just what they believe theologically, the radical generosity empowered by the spirit, empowered by their boldness, meets the needs in their community. It doesn't matter who Caesar is, what Caesar's up to. We catch a glimpse of the early church in this primary source from like the second century. And some of you have heard me share this before, but I find it fascinating. There's a man named Methodus, and he's writing uh, this letter to Diognetus, who some think that uh, this guy was mentoring Marcus Aurelius. So if you like Gladiator, or if you're a Stoic, you, you know Marcus Aurelius's role in the world. Um, and he's writing this apologetic of who the Christians are and what the Christians are up to. And I just want to read this, this glimpse into the early church. It says, for Christians, for Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use peculiar forms of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life yet. Although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their countries, but as aliens, they have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else. They beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men and by all men are persecuted. They are poor and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute and yet they enjoy complete abundance. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body, 
the Christians are in the world. The soul is dispersed through all the members of the body and Christians are scattered through all the cities in the, in the world. I love that idea that what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The body of Christ that meets needs in the community. So what is our response to this decision that has been made? I think it is to bring life. I think it's this being pro Imago Dei. If people are created in the image of God, they are worthy of our care. That takes on all sorts of different forms, from the womb, from the tomb. It means that we love our neighbors and we enter into situations where people are, are vulnerable, where things have not gone according to plan, and we walk alongside them. It means that we're compassionate, that we have empathy, that we understand what other people feel and are going through. It means that we bring life both here on earth and in heaven. We have this part of this eternal story, this message that we are resurrection people. This message of resurrection was central to the early church. Their generosity matched it, that this isn't, this isn't all there is in this life. We're a part of something so much more. So no matter what our circumstances, no matter what we sacrifice or we suffer, the word of God moves forward and God is glorified. This prayer, the nations rage and the people plot in vain, but our God is sovereign. Our response is we bring life from the womb, from the tomb. We wanna close with an upbeat song. And I realize that like, this is like a heavy message. And I realize that it's also, there's so much more to this conversation um, than what can just be said here. And uh, there's, there's ways that we can get involved as a church. I know that as we, we live in these false dichotomies, one of the accusations is that if you're, if you're against abortion, you don't do anything. Um, it's some of the, the people that I know that are, are against to do incredible acts of generosity and sacrifice um, with, with different crisis pregnancy centers. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the AND campaign and what they're doing with their whole life project right now. Um, there's a couple different things that we, we can do and, and we're going to be doing. Um, I think this is an opportunity for the church to be the body of Christ, to meet needs in our community, maybe like never before. Um, and our hope is to be empowered to do that. But we want to end with this song, and this song is really an anthem of, of what we believe as resurrection people in the midst of uh, a crazy world, a world that is full of brokenness, to be people of hope, to be people um, that, that God um, has empowered with this message of, of love and salvation, to be people of resurrection. So we're going to close with that song. And hopefully the mics won't go out when we do that. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for your grace and your power. And Lord, we are in the midst of a cultural moment that's heavy. And we are reminded that whatever our circumstances, we are a part of this eternal kingdom. And Lord, we can so easily get caught up in the way that the world works, the way that the world plots, the way that the world solves problems. And then we see in your incarnation a new way. And Lord, ask as your church that we would live into that story 
that we would be citizens of the kingdom. I ask your blessing on this group today, Lord, with all of the different emotions that are felt, that you would meet us with your peace. We'd be reminded of your sovereignty. Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom. I ask that you would open our eyes and ears to be um, sensitive to uh, stories going on around us. And Lord, that your resurrection power would come through. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.